All right, well, we'll get started this morning. You can turn to Psalm 137. So this is where I am in my reading going through Psalms. And in many ways, I mean, a lot of the Psalms I probably say are my favorite Psalms, but this Psalm I really, really like, especially during the time of the festivals, because I always joke I'm the guy that's hanging his harp up in the willows. Um, because even though these are festivals and supposed to be joyous times, for me, probably more so than most people that I know of in the Messianic movement, though they are, you know, festivals that we reflect on and participate in and find joy in, <coughs> I, I find them for me, except for Passover, I find the rest of them for me, oh, kind of heavy times. And primarily because now coming into this Messianic Hebraic mindset, we have a real longing, more so than we ever had, to be involved in these festivals. I mean, to really carry them out. And for me, my heart cries out for Jerusalem, for the temple, for Yeshua being back, and his kingdom in which we will participate in these things like we're supposed to obediently in the land and carrying out all the requirements of it as the Bible says. And so for me, and maybe it's because I'm on the latter years, entering into the latter years of life and looking forward to what's coming next, I have more of a longing for really Yeshua coming. And just taking charge of everything. You know, I know the process of getting to when he comes back is going to kind of not be smooth sailing, but I look forward to it. So, so when I come to the festivals, though they're times of reflection and meditation and looking forward to what will be, for me, I'm the guy that's hanging this harp up on the willow. You know, I just, my heart gets heavy. And, and as I said before, I, I think that's part of it. We're in the diaspora, you know, Though we try to make do with observing these festivals, there has to be people like me that aren't going to go off and take cruises and, and suka away, you know, this, that, and the other thing. You know, my heart is broken, one, because I'm, I hate to say words like this, but I'm PO'd that we're in the diaspora. I'm PO'd because we can't go to Jerusalem because Jerusalem's not how it should be. I'm just aggravated by the whole mess. And my heart is heavy. So, going through Psalm 137, it happened to fall during this week of Sukkot, which was perfect for me. And then Luke sent me a link to a song about 137, which it never dawned on me. There might be a song, and I couldn't open the link. Um, so I thought, well, I'll go to YouTube, maybe I'll find it. And one of the first ones that came up was the same song that we just listened to. And I like the fact that, for me... At first, I'm listening to the song and saying, this is too much of a happy song. But with the visuals that, that we watched, it really shows the heartache and the brokenness of these people in Babylon, sitting by the river, the harp hung up on the willow, people weeping, you know, and, 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 and they're being required to sing a song of joy. You know, they're probably being taunted. You know, I can, what my mind goes to is like, you know, uh, in Auschwitz, they have the people playing the violins and stuff while they're marching off the, to, the, to, the, um, 
to the ovens. You know, you, you guys play some music while they're marching off to their death. It's a taunting thing, I think. Uh, and they're saying, how can we? Our heart's not here. And so I love, I love Psalm 137. Now, what I did was, um, and again, I tend to be lengthy, but please just bear with me. I, uh, <coughs> oh, Luke, down button. oh, down button, sorry. Let me go back again. Oh, down. 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 I am. Oh, I'm not. Okay, so I wanted to do some reading about this because I tend, at least in my own estimation, to not be able to put words to the deep thoughts that are in me that I want to get out. So I, I went to Spurgeon's Treasury of David, and it's online. You can see it. I've had it in the past. I don't. I think I left it with the church. Church bought a lot of books for me, which were my own, but I felt like I should leave most of them for the next pastor, and I did. <coughs> but anyway, you can see the stuff online. So <clears throat> what I did was... I was going to give you a printout. I ran out of ink. I forgot to bring my own copy. Thankfully, I sent this to Luke to have on the computer so it could be on a wall. So I wanted you, instead of following me, to see the words. So this is Spurgeon's, his own note. And he says, This plaintive ode is one of the most charming compositions in the whole book of Psalms for its poetic power. If it were not inspired, it would nevertheless occupy a high place in poetry, he says, posy especially the former portion of it, which is tender and patriotic to the highest degree. In the latter psalm, we have utterances of burning indignation against the chief adversaries of Israel, an indignation as righteous as it was fervent. Let those find fault with it who have never seen their temple burned or their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain. They might not perhaps be quite so velvet-mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. And I thought that last part was wonderful because when you get to the end of Psalm 137, which is just a few verses, it's, it's invective. God just tear them apart. And, and I love how he said it because we're so, oh, how love, and God's a God of love. And, I, you know, we're so messed up in, in modern Christianity, probably they would, Christians would find fault with this. You know, how could David say this stuff? You know, driving into town, it's love one another. I'm, I'm one of the church bumper stickers out here. It's love thy neighbor or love your neighbor on the car. And I said to Judy on the way coming in, you can't get past the first word anymore. How do you define love? Right? So, um, how do I, I don't even know how I got on that. Oh, oh, it's not loving what David said, but I love what he said. Let those find fault with it who have never seen their temple burned, their city ruined, their wives ravished, and their children slain. They might not perhaps be quite so velvet mouthed if they had suffered after this fashion. <laughs> I love that. All right, so down button? Yes. All right. So then he starts uh, quoting from different people. Uh, it's somewhere, I don't know if we'll see it if it got transferred to notes. But anyway, it's one thing to talk of the bitter feeling which moved captive Israelites in Babylon, and quite another thing to be captives ourselves under a savage and remorseless power which knew not how to show mercy, but delighted in the barbarities to the defenseless. The song is such as might fitly be sung in the Jews' wailing place. It is a fruit of the captivity in Babylon, and often it has furnished expression for sorrows which else had been unutterable. 
It is, yeah, this is still Spurgeon, Spurgeon I remember. Yeah. It is an uh, opalesque. I had to look that up. Can't find opalesque. You can find opal. It's from the, the, uh, the, the stone opal. So it's, uh, it's, it is an opalesque psalm wherein whose mild radiance there glows a fire which strikes the beholder with wonder. You just can't beat how Spurgeon writes. That's it, awesome that he, 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 he used that analogy. Yeah. I, I know a lot about opals. One of my wife's most favorite stones is there's like a fire within it. Yeah, so, this is so good. It's, it's good yeah, stuff. This is, it'll say at the top what the new quote is. Okay. The next one. Now. Okay, so this is a guy that Spurgeon. So what's cool about Spurgeon's Treasury of David, because he did it for Psalms, is he had this massive library. And some of the books that he has go back you know, 1600s, 1500s, and even before. So he had this massive library. So he went through and sifted out of all these authors that he had in his library stuff that he thought would speak uh, to the Psalms. So here's one by this, I don't know who this fellow is, C.J. Vaughn. Observe that this very Psalm in which the question is asked, how can we sing, is itself a song, which I thought was really cool. I hadn't thought of it. You know, they say, how can we sing a song, but the Psalm is a song. Uh, how can we sing, is itself a song, one of the Lord's songs still. Nothing can be more sad and more desponding. It speaks of weeping in the remembrance of Zion. It speaks of hearts hung upon the willows by exiles who have no heart to use them. And yet the very telling of these sorrows, of this incapacity for song, is a song still. We chant it. See, this is how far we've come. We don't chant this song in Hesim anymore, him anymore. We chant it in our congregations now, hundreds and thousands of years after its composition as one of the church's melodies, as one of the Lord's songs. It gives us a striking example of the variety of the versatility of worship even in that department which might seem to be all joyous, all praise. The very refusal to sing may be itself a song. Any real utterance of good thoughts, whether they be thoughts of gladness or thoughts of sorrow, may be a true hymn, a true melody for the congregation, even though it may not breathe at every moment of the very thought of all the worshipers. That's just great. How shall we sing? is itself a permanent hymn, an inspired song for all the churches. So that was a great note. All right, this fellow uh, W. Ormiston in the study, 1874. Several of the Psalms obviously refer to the time of the Babylonian captivity. The captive's mournful sentiments of pensive melancholy and weary longing during its long and weary continuance constitute the burden of the 137th Psalm. It was probably written by some gifted captive Levite at the time. Some suppose it to have been composed by Jeremiah, which I thought was an interesting thought. The prophet of tears, and sent to his countrymen in the land of their exile in order to awaken fond memories of the past and sustain a lively hope for the future. Wasn't that really cool? I never thought about that. You know, Jeremiah said, they're way up there, oh man, and he writes this for them. If that's true, you know, I love connecting the dots. It brings all this stuff to life. So this author's proposing that Jer- some of these psalms were actually written by Levites in captivity? Uh, can I go back? Uh, 
It was probably written by some gifted captive Levite at the time. Yeah. Or, obviously, yeah, or some supposed, right. <coughs> yeah. All right. Uh, so, fond memories of the past and sustain a lively hope for the future. And certainly the ode is worthy even of his pen, for it is one of the sweetest, most plaintive, and exquisitively beautiful elegies in any language. It's full of heart-melting, tear-bringing pathos, the moaning of the captive, the wailing of the exile, and the sighing of the saints are heard in every line. How come we don't see scripture like that, right? Why can't I read it? And my mind puts that into my head. I don't know. Franz Dillich. There's, this is from um, Kyle and Dillich. <coughs> I don't like everything they write, but this, this is good. And this is still Spurgeon put it up. <laughs> By the rivers. The bank of a river, like the seashore, is a favorite place of sojourn of those whom deep grief drives forth from the bustle of men into solitude. The boundary line of the river gives to the solitude a safe back. The monotonous splashing of the waves keeps up the dull, melancholy alternation of thoughts and feelings. And at the same time, the sight of the cool, fresh water exercises a soothing influence upon the consuming fever within the heart. That's just right. That's what happens, right? Gosh. All right, this fellow, Henry Hart Millman, 1791 to 1868. In, quote, the history of the Jews, quote, Nothing could present a more striking contrast to their native country than the region into which the Hebrews were transplanted. Instead of their irregular and picturesque mountain city, crowning its unequal heights and looking down into its deep and precipitous ravines, through one of which a scanty stream wound along, they entered, so that's what they're used to now, they entered the vast square and level city of Babylon. Remember the picture we first saw. I thought that was pretty good. Uh, Enter the vast square and level city of Babylon, occupying both sides of the broad Euphrates, while all around spread immense plains, which were intersected by long, straight canals bordered by rows of willows. How unlike their national temple, a small but highly finished and richly adorned fabric, standing in the midst of its courts on the brow of a lofty precipice, the colossal temple of the Chaldean Baal. In other words, it's saying, you know, here you see this, this wonderful pageantry of the temple there, and then, you know, they're thinking about back home. Rising from its plain with its eight stupendous stories or towers, one above the other, to the perpendicular height of a furlong, the palace of the Babylonian kings was more than twice the size of their whole city. It covered eight miles with its hanging gardens built on arched terraces, each rising above the other and rich in all the luxuriance of artificial cultivation. How different from the sunny cliffs of their own land, where the olive and the vine grew spontaneously in the cool, shady, and secluded valleys where they could always find shelter from the heat of the burning noon. No wonder then that, in the pathetic words of their own hymn, by the waters of Babylon they sat down and wept when they remembered the Ozion. Of their general treatment as captives we know little. The psalm above quoted seems to intimate that the Babylonians had 
taste enough to appreciate the poetical and musical talent of the exiles, and that they were summoned occasionally to amuse the banquets of their masters, though it was much against their will that they sang the songs of Zion in a strange land. In general, it seems that the Jewish exiles were allowed to dwell together in considerable bodies, not sold as household or personal or predial slaves, at least not those of the better order of whom the captivity chiefly consisted. Uh, they were colonists rather than captives and became by degrees possessed of considerable property. They had taken the advice of the prophet Jeremiah, who gave them no hopes of speedy return to their homes. They had built houses, planted gardens, married and brought up children, submitted themselves as peaceful subjects to the local authorities, all which implies a certain freedom, a certain degree of prosperity and comfort. They had free enjoyment of the religion, such at least as adhered faithfully to their belief in Jehovah. We hear of no special and general religious persecutions. So that, that's a whole mouthful. Uh, I'm not going to regurgitate. All right, M Maria Calcutt, 1788-1842, in uh, a scripture herbal, 1842. I thought this was really good. Willows. It is a curious fact that during the Commonwealth of England, when Cromwell, like a wise a politician, allowed them to settle the Jews, allowed them to settle in London and to have their synagogues, the Jews came hither in sufficient numbers to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles in booths among the willows on the borders of the Thames. I thought that was interesting. The disturbance of their comfort from the innumerable spectators, chief, chiefly London apprentices, called for some protection from the local magistrates. Not that any insult was offered to the persons, but a natural curiosity excited by so new and extraordinary uh, spectacle, induced by many to press too closely round their camp and perhaps intrude upon their privacy. I just thought that was an interesting piece of, of history, you know. So the Jews are allowed to come back, they're settling in London, they have a synagogue, they, they come, there's a lot of numbers, so they come forth to celebrate the Feast of Booths among the willows on the borders of the Thames. So I thought that was so cool. It. <laughs> so anyway, that's just a little bit of insight from all these other people that, thanks to Spurgeon, we never probably read or know anything about. So that's a lot about the psalm, but <clears throat> for me it kind of <clears throat> enabled me to enter into the psalm emotionally and intellectually to kind of put some thoughts together that I, I never would have uh, put together. So we're going to look at Psalm 137. I've entitled it, By the Rivers of of Babylon, and as I've already stated, this is kind of my psalm for the festivals. All right, so we're here we are at the end of Sukkot, right? <clears throat> now for me, <clears throat> I love this psalm because it parallels with us in the diaspora and the longings of our heart for Yeshua's kingdom. That's what I like about this. And <clears throat> in the midst of how happy we are, coming back to the Messianic movement and the Hebraic mindset, and we're celebrating all these feasts and festivals happily and joyously, which we should. On the other side, you know, there's, there's the Hebraic thought, yes, both are right. Yes, we should rejoice. On the other side, it says, well, wait a minute, there should be some mourning in the midst of all this, because I think at the end of time when Yeshua is going to come back and he's drawing people back to himself, <clears throat> there has to become a longing in the hearts of his people to get out of Babylon, <laughs> you know, to stop being at ease in our Zion, 
the hunger for the things that really matter a sustenance in the word of God. And as long as we're happy being like those who lived in Babylon and because there weren't many per perhaps restrictions, maybe they had land, they could live, they're going to be there 70 years, they have families, children, and they settle and they get all at ease. And, and we know that in part because not all come back when they have an opportunity to come back. They're too ingrained. You know, they own property. But, you know, it just goes on and on. <clears throat> well, something has to happen to the body of Messiah that Yeshua is drawing back and calling to himself because he's preparing a bride for his arrival. And a part of the preparation is our part has to feel as his heart felt. You know, what did Yeshua do? He looked over Jerusalem and he wept. And said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I'd love to gather you together as a hen gathers his brood around him, but you would not. He's broken over the state of his people. And so we come to the psalm, and I love it because perhaps it's something that they refer to during the festivals. I don't know. But it expresses Something that has to be in us, I think, before Yeshua comes, a real longing for his kingdom, living under him, and fulfilling it all as it's supposed to be. So, I like the psalm because it parallels with us in the diaspora and the longings of our hearts for Yeshua's kingdom. So, I've broken this psalm up into three sections. First, they are not where they should be, verses 1 through 4. They don't want to forget where they're supposed to be, verses 5 and 6. And they don't want, uh, and they're, so that was two. And th three, they're trusting God to return them to where they seek to be. That's verses 7 through 9. So that's it. They're not where they should be, 1 through 4. They don't want to forget where they're supposed to be, 5 and 6. And they're trusting God to return them to where they seek to be, verses 7 through 9. So we're, we'll work our way through this. So. You know, one of the things when I read this is, and I don't know how your mind reacts, and of course you're reading this now, so you haven't done it like I did in devotions, and, and my mind is kind of there. You know, by the rivers of Babylon, you know, I, I think it's supposed to be like, wait a minute, by the rivers of Babylon, they're not supposed to be there. That's the first thought that comes to my mind. They're not supposed to be there. Wait a minute, by the rivers of Babylon. You know, if you, if you meditate your way through these psalms, rather than, as I try to say in my blog, get it all intellectually, but make, allow God to make a spiritual connection of what's going on, first thing should jump off is like, by the rivers of Babylon, what is going on here? This should never even be a psalm, right? This should never even be a hymn. And so I'm thinking, you know, here they are by the rivers of Babylon, and if it was me, I, I just know me. I, you know, if, if they have time and they're over by the rivers of Babylon and they're congregating together, I know I would just be sitting there shaking my head saying, how did we ever get here? You know, how did, how, what are we doing here? How did this happen? And I have to believe that's part of the mindset of these people because they're being, hey, sing a happy song. They're saying, we can't. It's not, no, we're not going to. This is not right. This is wrong. And us in the diaspora now, we should be shaking our heads saying, how did we get here? Why are we still here? How come we're not back? How do we get back? Right? 
you know, I try to, I don't know why these thoughts come. You know, it's like, you know, I, so I'm thinking, you know, I'm sitting there being there. You know, it's like, hey, what's your new mailing address? Um, Babylon. <laughs> you know. Hey, where'd you move to? What's your new, I want to, I want to contact, where are you? By, oh, by the way, where are you? What? You know? That's how wrong it is. You know, it's kind of like with us moving from New England to Arizona. You did what? <laughs> yeah, when we were first moving, and I was talking to people at, at work and, and family members, like, you're going to go to the desert. You know? It's like, well, it doesn't compute New England to the desert. <laughs> Jerusalem to Babylon. It doesn't compute. So they're in Babylon. And so that's verse one. And so what we notice is that verses two through three tell us basically the song within them has died. And, and I forgot since I didn't bring my notes with me and forgot to even look them over this morning. It's interesting. That's what one of the notes alluded to. The song was gone. You know, the song was gone. The song in their heart had died. You know, it's it's the problem is. Because it tells us here, uh, how verse 4, how shall we sing, I think this is so cool, the Lord's song in a strange land. How can we sing, this, this is where you get, this, something's not right here. It's the Lord's song, but in a strange land. And so for me, my thought was, the Lord's song in a strange land is a mixture, like oil and water. They don't mix. And these people are, whoever they are, not all of them, but some of them, because they went back, they're burdened. This is a mixture of song. How do you sing the Lord's song in a strange land? This, this is not supposed to be. And, and so that should be at least part of our plaintive cry, right? This is, and how, how can we observe the Lord's festivals in a strange land? I'm telling you, and I've said this over and over, until... God's people are, who are being drawn back to this Messianic movement, at least at some point, have this mindset, we're just going to be, we're no different than the, those Jews in Babylon decided to stay because they were fat, dumb, and happy. So thankfully you have this remnant that says, hey, sing a song for us, you guys, look, you're not even supposed to be here. Kind of sing something for us how it used to be. And some of them just say, you know what, I'm not going to do it, see my heart? Right over there, hanging in a tree. You want to sing a song? Get it and sing it yourself. We ain't doing it. You want to amuse yourself? Go for it. So here's this, this thing. They're not where they should be. They're in Babylon. Just some verses about this. Turn with me if you would. Turn to First uh, Peter chapter 1. I just I'm, What I want to do is make the correlation, the parallel to... Us. You know, because how do we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? In other words, they're saying, we are strangers here in this land. How are we supposed to do this? We're strangers in a place where we shouldn't be. And, and we have that in, in the New Testament uh, uh, writer, writings. And so I just want to make this connection because this is what it is. So 1 Peter chapter 1. I mean, just the way it starts out, if I can get to it. Peter, an apostle of Yeshua Messiah, to the strangers scattered abroad, the diaspora, throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he goes on. But that's who he's talking to. It's us. 
And you, you know, surely there had to be strangers in this strange land. How can we sing the Lord's song in a strange land? We're strangers in this land that's not ours. There ha, you know, we're learning that the, the, that the writings of the New Testament writers aren't just something, oh yeah, we're strangers in a strange land, new thought. No! There's a connection of hundreds of years. Strangers in a strange land singing the Lord's song. Now, it's happening all over again. Now, it's just not now. Babylon, it's, it's uh, Pontius, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia, and Bithynia. It's happening all over again. Uh, chapter 2 of 1 Peter. Uh, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And he's trying to tell us, if you want to go back, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God when he comes back and lets them have it, which is how that psalm ends. Uh, where am I here? Uh, let's go back to Psalm 119. This is just, this actually I just saw this this morning because this is one of these verses that I pray uh, in the morning. So one, Psalm 119, 19. I am a stranger in the earth. I, I love that. I am a stranger in the earth. Hide not thy commandments from me. Ever feel like that? Well, yeah, because the, the, the clear communication, the clear flow from the Thrown to God's people is is interrupted because there's no temple. His people are not in the land. It's not being done how it's supposed to be, and so there's this this break in communication. It's it's like the old westerns where hey, get a message. You know, tell them the bad guys are coming, and the bad guys have already clipped the uh, uh, telegraph wires. You know, the message can't get through. There's a break. We are strangers in the earth. God, I want to hear from you. Don't hide your commandments from me. I love stuff like that. So they're not where they are supposed, they're not where they should be. They're in Babylon, probably shaking their heads, having to give out a, a mailing address, which embarrasses them. They're, they're required of the captives to sing a song, but they're saying, hey, the song is dead in my heart because we're in this mixture and I don't want it. Now, second thing, they don't want to forget where they are supposed to be. That's verses 5 and 6. So back to 137. I like this because they don't want ever to forget Jerusalem. And, and this is where Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. Jerusalem, that's where this comes from. And uh, the King James says, uh, if I, if I forget the old Jerusalem, let my right hand forget her cunning. And, you know, let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do. And for whatever reason, I never put it together, but it's in connection with the harps. I think it's, it's if I ever forget you, Jerusalem, don't let me ever be able to touch another musical instrument for your glory again. You know, don't let my right hand forget what it's supposed to do, what, it's, what it was doing that I'm not doing now. Um, and and, and I, I think that's what it's talking about. Jerusalem, if I forget you, that hand that used to play the harp, don't let it ever play for you. Hey, got new words. 
I should have been a songwriter. Uh, That's pretty good, huh? It just came right then. <laughs> My wife's embarrassed. <laughs> All right. So anyway, so um, they don't want to ever forget Jerusalem. And the interesting thing is because we all know that with the passing of time, memories start to fade. You know, 70 years, it's not, oh, 70 years is not long. You know, but we start thinking about things that we see the grandkids do, and we get, and it'll trigger memories, your thoughts. And, oh, yeah, and we forgot so much of what was so precious when our kids were so young. The passing of time just dims memories. And we have to do something to keep those memories fresh or they will grow dim. And so that's why they are constantly trying to keep Jerusalem in the forefront of their thoughts because they don't want to forget it. And time fades. I mean, you know, you think you clearly remember somebody in your mind as you picture them until you run across the photo of what they really did look like. And you thought, wow, my memory, it does things. And they're, they're trying to take precautions here to do whatever they can to not forget what is most important to them, and that is Jerusalem. So, for us, so I'm going to tell you, the Jerusalem that is now, I'm not a big fan of. The Israel that is now, I'm just not a big fan of it. The land is mine, I want to go back. But the Jerusalem that is now is, is just, you know, and the Israel that is now, it's a mixture. It's just a mixture. It's a mess. And so I, I want to go back to the land and live there. I do. It's my land. Not because I have warm fuzzies about the Jews or Jerusalem or, you know, we can see all this stuff and go to the Wailing Wall and feel this great feeling. I don't care about any of that stuff. It's my land. They're polluting my land. I don't care if it's Israel or not. And I, that, even that term Israel is... is oh, I gotta be Just because somebody's called a Jew, as Paul tells us, doesn't mean that they're an Israelite. They're invaders of my land. That's how I look at it. So, where was I going? So, all right, so... Our focus, I don't believe, so, so we, I do hunger for Jerusalem, but our focus is a different Jerusalem, and that's what I want us to look at. So go to Galatians chapter 4, and, and, and as I got thinking about this, and this longing that they had for Jerusalem, then you come over into the uh, New Testament epistles to see how somebody who is very connected with the Jerusalem below tells us that's not where our focus should be. All right, Galatians 4. I was going to do more with all this, but I don't even know how long I've been preaching. Um, well, in, well, let's start at 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Zion, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, for this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, which answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. Why we couldn't see those that part of the information before we came into the Messianic mindset, rather than, oh yes, it's two different things, one's done away with. No, we have a little bit more explanation here. It's talking about the Jerusalem that now is in bondage. 26. But Jerusalem, which is above is free. 
which is the mother of us all. See, that's where our focus is supposed to be. You know, and I, I, I got this thought because verse 6 back in Psalm 136, you don't have to go, but uh, if I do not remember thee, let my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth, if I prefer not Jerusalem above. That's what got me thinking on this. That's what got me thinking of Paul. You know, no, we're not focused on the, on the Jerusalem that is here. It's the Jerusalem above. That's the Jerusalem that I'm looking towards. Uh, let's see. Go up to Hebrews chapter 12, the book that in many Messianic congregations today is supposed Hebrews, to be out. Yeah, Hebrews, what did I say? Hebrews 12. Just to draw our attention to some verses, showing or reiterating the fact that, you know, our focus, though we love the Jerusalem that now is, that's not our Jerusalem. Hebrews 12, 22. But ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. And then it goes on and talks about that. But I, I like the fact that it's getting us to, to think about this heavenly Jerusalem. Uh, turn up to Revelation 3. Chapter 3? Yep, Revelation chapter 3. Just a couple verses in Revelation uh, Revelation 3.12 Him that overcometh will I make a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go no more out. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, which is New Jerusalem, which cometh down out of heaven from my God. See, it's the Jerusalem above. Chapter 21. Revelation Verse 2 says, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God, out of heaven, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And 10.10. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven. So that's the Jerusalem we should have our focus upon. Not the Jerusalem that now is. And, and even Paul intimates that that's not where our focus should be. It's the Jerusalem that is above. That's the mother of us all. The heavenly Jerusalem. Not this earthly, distorted, perverted, messed up, pagan, <clears throat> political, lost, Muslim-dominated city. Right? No! So, Jerusalem above, my chief joy. So, they don't want to forget where they're supposed to be. But I want us to realize that over there is not even still where we're supposed to be. We're looking for what ultimately it's all supposed to point to, the Jerusalem above. All right, and then lastly, they're trusting God to return them to where they seek to be. That's verses 7 through 9. And this is where the invectives come that uh, Spurgeon was talking about. Oh, yeah, you think this is hard language? You wait until you see your wife ravaged, your kids killed, your homes burned down, your temple destroyed. Then you see how nice and uh, silk-mouthed you are. You know, we got to get rid of this crap. 
You know, it's okay to be mad and frustrated and verbalize it. You know, just because you're driving to town that says, you see the sign in front of a church about love, and then you see another one, oh, in the bumper sticker, talks about love. I don't care about that kind of love. It's not the world's definition and Christianity's definition of love. It's not in totality my definition of love. Because God's love is, is very warm and fuzzy, but at times because he loves so much, he has to take action, and he just wipes out people. He just wipes out people. Because love is not the number one thing. It is God's name and what it stands for. And this is his creation. And when his creation goes awry and astray, he has every right to just take that lump of clay and smash it with his foot and say, I'm done with you. That's love. See, sometimes, as a parent, you have to exhibit tough love. You have to sometimes paddle and, and discipline and take privileges away. But to do less than that is not to love. You know, I drive the bus and I'm pretty tough, but the kids, at least on one of the routes, say, you know, they like having me because I keep things under control, unlike the driver in the afternoon. You know, what are they saying? Boundaries. They recognize I care because they aren't allowed to do whatever they and talk like Luke, flipping one, two. <laughs> That's love. And God loves so much that instead of annihilating everything, he sent his son. And out of an act of love, God so loved the world, he put his son to death. Can we say it that way? God so loved the world so much, he allowed his son to come and willingly die. And that was a plan from the beginning. That's love. I don't even get on this. Oh, this that these verses aren't loving. <laughs> yeah, they are. Just depends on what side you're on. So let's just read these. Uh, and I haven't read anything, but I want to read these. So, verse 7. Remember, O Yehovah, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. O daughter of Babylon, who art to be destroyed, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. End of psalm. Gosh. I mean, that's how it is, but you know why? They lived through this. And there happened to be a handful that would gather along the rivers of Babylon and hang up the harp and say, no, this is not right. It's a mixture. We're not going to be a part of it. And I have to believe it's some of those that went back while the rest stayed. In the day of Jerusalem, verse 7, remember, O Yehovah, the children of Edom, in the day of Jerusalem. One source says, in the day of Jerusalem. It's talking about in the day when Jerusalem shall be restored. So, so it's looking to the future in essence, saying, you know, God, listen, remember the children of Edom in the day that Jerusalem shall be restored. And it's not going to be restored till the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven. It's not going to be. We're, we're not going to fix this up. You can send all the Christians, all the Messianics, all the believers in the world to sit in Jerusalem right now. It would still be a disaster. <laughs> 
probably it would be better in a in better shape if he kept all of us out. Because we, if you read this blog, we're so messed up. <laughs> anyway, that's all sermon. So, turn to Obadiah, if you will. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. Then comes Jonah. So, interestingly, you know, in our psalm, he's talking about Edom. Because Edom evidently just stood by and did nothing while Babylon was coming along and just ravaging the place. So, you know, now their cry is, oh, Yehovah, raise it. You know, R-A-S-E. Just destroy it, God. Wipe it out. All right, so Obadiah. And that's what this whole book is about. Verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus saith Yehovah, uh, the Lord Yehovah concerning Edom. And then it goes on. And then if you would go to verse, what, 10. Uh, for, let's see, make sure I have the right notes here. Uh, yeah, 10 through 16. So, for thy violence, it's talking about, um, it's talking against or at uh, uh, Edom right now. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast one of them. But thou shouldst not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldst thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldst thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldst not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldst not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldst thou have stood in a crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldst thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of Yehovah is near upon all heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though... They had not been. You know, that's, you know, we don't know anything about the minor prophets. Yeah, the minor prophets, they had some pretty strong invective language about God's enemies. And so that's, you know, so when you see this in Psalm 137, it's not unprecedented to have these feelings because here Obadiah writes about this stuff. So they're, they're trusting God to return them to where they seek to be. That's where I am right now. I, I, I'm trusting, I, basically our life right now is what this psalm is about. Um, God, we're not where we should be. We don't want to forget where we're supposed to be, which for us is, is yes, we want the land, but Jerusalem above. And so now, where are we now? We are trusting God to get us where we seek to be, right? Now, if God, and I've prayed and I've besought God, kind of give up. I go up and down this because if you're on God, I'm not going to do it anyway. But I want to go live in Israel. I don't know how it's going to happen. I don't care how it happens. As far as I know, my wife will be staying and I'll be going. But I want to go and live in in Israel. I want to go up north and live up there. Why? Like I've already said, because it's my land. It's mine. Right? It's mine. It's ours. We are the true Israelite. The promises of the land are for Israel. And I, so I want to go back for that. But that's not really what I'm seeking. I am seeking that Jerusalem above. I want Yeshua to come. You know, I'm at the end of Revelation saying, come on, 
please come back. Please, I'm ready. That's where my heart is. And so when it comes to these festivals, other than for whatever reason, Passover, I, I love, you know, I, I have this heaviness. I don't want to get my harp and play. You know, I don't even really want to enter in because uh, I want to be where I'm supposed to be. And I think to some degree, at least as I see it, that's, that's what we're called to in Psalm 137. You know, don't be satisfied with the mixture. You know, the Lord's song in a strange land. That never should be. You know. Anyway, that's all I have to say. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I don't know. As I was telling Luke a week or so back, one thing, at least for the preacher, he gets blessed. And I thank you for blessing me in uh, reading this psalm. You know, the the times that I have lately and go over it and to break it down and to make it mine to find some comfort and solace and, and even this song that we watched by the rivers of Babylon to just see the pictures you know I, I have a visual yeah Babylon it's just this beautiful sprawling place but they're saying man it's not our land it's not where we should be you know we're tired of all this pomp and pageantry you know we're not even going to sing the Lord's song in this strange land we want to go back. And they, they, they were looking to the end of the 70 years. You know, I don't know how long till Yeshua comes back. But I think the more of your people that have a real hunger for him to come back and get weaned off of this world and all the desires and things that we chase after and want to become a part of and just really start to carry a weight and a burden that Yeshua come and restore things back to how it all should be. Maybe... Maybe we're in the way to some degree. So anyway, Father, I thank you for this day, for the Shabbat. It's time to reflect. And thank you that you gave us your word inspired, your living word for us. And that speaks even today. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen.